Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to you all. My wife and I just returned from a really wonderful trip up to the New England area. We were actually up just outside Boston where this radio show is broadcast. And we were visiting our first grandson. And, of course, his parents, our son and daughter-in-law. Now, we had often been told by people who were grandparents already how absolutely wonderful it is to have grandchildren and to get a chance to spend some time with them, spoil them, love on them, etc. And I have to admit, it really is different holding your grandchild as opposed to holding your own child. Perhaps one difference is you aren't completely responsible for their upbringing and care. You get to play with them, and then you get to hand them back to the parents. And as a Christian and a creationist, I view my little grandson as a creature created in the image of God, as something much more than just the 15 pounds of chemicals and water that I'm holding in my hands. And in fact, his development from a premature little infant into a growing infant, and he's going to be a big boy, his daddy is a big man, and he will become a toddler, and if things go well and he stays healthy, he'll become a young child, he'll run and play, he'll eventually grow into an adult. Right now, his little body is developing all of the organs necessary. His head is much larger relative to the rest of his body, than it will be as he continues developing. And he's going through that entire process of a baby developing from a single fertilized cell. Absolutely astonishing. And we now know in the realm of pure science that a person, a creature, is much more than just their DNA. And we did several episodes here recently, four of them, that were an interview with Dr. Jonathan Wells, looking at one specific source of information utilized in the development of a creature, including my grandson, that do not reside within the DNA and do not emanate from the DNA. So that whole view that I learned growing up, that you are your DNA, you know, the whole Richard Dawkins selfish gene sort of view of life, is really being proven false by science, let alone by a scriptural view. Now, as a grandparent, I truly love the little guy. There's no doubt about that. I would do whatever I could to protect him. Now, as a Christian, that makes perfect sense because he's created in the image of God. Many, many non-Christians also love their children and grandchildren. No doubt about that. However, there are those who take an evolutionary worldview to its logical conclusions and reach very different responses to children. After all, if evolution is true, then my grandson is nothing more than a biological machine. He's nothing but chemicals and molecules in motion. And some evolutionists have said that, you know, if a child becomes inconvenient, even after they're born, we should be absolutely allowed by law to simply do away with them, get rid of them. You could have other children if you wish later, but by all means, you shouldn't be shackled with an inconvenient child to deal with. After all, they're very expensive to raise, and they sure get in the way of your lifestyle. 
And so some evolutionists are not only pro-abortion for any reason whatsoever, including pure convenience, but they are in favor of the ability to simply kill children for exactly the same reasons. Now, if you're familiar with the realm of secular academic thought, this won't be such a shock to you. If you're unaware of what's being taught and thought by people within that realm, you may think I'm making this up, or you may be quite shocked by the implications of such thought. Who would think such things? Well, how about Pete Singer, the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University? Now, consider the title of his most comprehensive work, Practical Ethics and you get a view into why he might think such things. Now, Peter Singer is not an illogical thinker. He's not an unintelligent man, and he's not an uneducated man. Quite the opposite. In fact, his rationale and thought process related to this is quite visible in a section titled Abortion, Euthanasia, and Infanticide in the Wikipedia article about Peter Singer. And it says that in Singer's view... The central argument against abortion may be stated as the following syllogism. It is wrong to kill an innocent human being. A human fetus is an innocent human being, therefore it is wrong to kill a human fetus. And multiple times, Singer has said that if we take these premises at face value, the argument is deductively valid. What are the premises? First, that it's wrong to kill an innocent human being. That's a premise. Second, that a human fetus is an innocent human being. And Peter notes that many defenders of evolution attack this second premise, suggesting that a fetus becomes human or alive at some point after conception. However, Singer finds this argument flawed, in that human development is a gradual process and it's nearly impossible to mark a particular moment in time as the moment at which human life begins. Now, I would disagree with Singer's conclusion here, but that's not really the point. He's pointing out that the defenders of abortion are not making a good argument. That is, they try to attack the notion that a human fetus is an innocent human being, and there isn't any really good way to determine exactly when does a creature become a human being. Instead, Singer himself attacks the first premise. Remember that one? It is wrong to kill an innocent human being? He attacks that premise. And he does it in this way. In referring to the argument that a fetus is not alive, he says that is a resort to a convenient fiction that turns an evidently living being, that would be the fetus we're looking at, into one that is legally not alive. Instead of accepting such fictions, we should recognize that the fact that a being is human and alive does not in itself tell us whether it is wrong to take that being's life. And you may be surprised to hear this, but I completely agree with Singer's logic. All by themselves, the fact that a creature is human, that a being is human and alive, that fact all by itself doesn't tell us whether it's wrong to take a human's life, does it? From a Christian perspective, there are some additional facts that cannot be ignored, and that is the commandments of the Creator God. 
It's information from God himself that tells us the nature of man as a created being, created in his image, and the fact that it is wrong to kill a human being. That information comes by revelation from God himself. You cannot derive it by simply looking at the molecules around us. Singer is absolutely correct in that. His worldview as an atheist would be there is nothing else, and so his arguments are logically valid. However, they are obnoxious and abhorrent, and many, many atheists want to completely disagree with his conclusion that there's nothing wrong with killing a human being. They disagree with the conclusion, but a truly atheistic worldview has no particular reason to disagree with that conclusion. You have to find some rationale for applying value to human life. And if you consider human life nothing more than animated molecules and chemistry, where does that rationale come from? Precisely how does human life differ from E. coli bacteria, for example? The longer I've been involved in apologetics, which is now more than 35 years, the longer I have been a Christian, and the more I think about the differences between the way I personally thought as an atheist and the way current-day atheists expose their thinking in their writings, the more I realize how fundamentally and phenomenally important is a person's worldview. Is there really a creator God, or is man just molecules? Ideas have consequences. As we continue to think about whether or not human beings have some kind of intrinsic value, let's consider a bit further the logic of Peter Singer. He's the author of such works as Rethinking Life and Death, as well as Practical Ethics, and he is the DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. So one would think he's being treated as an expert in the realm of bioethics. Indeed, he specializes in applied ethics, and the notion of killing a young child infanticide is very much applied ethics. Is it right or is it wrong? Heck, I can back up a bit further. Is there any such notion as right and wrong? And I hope it's very, very clear to all of you that from a biblical worldview, there is no question here. It's absolutely wrong to kill your child for convenience sake, because God has said so. He has told us that child is made in his image. And furthermore, he has told us that it is absolutely wrong to murder a human being. So the biblical worldview has no ambiguities about this at all. But how does Peter Singer arrive at his conclusions? Well, consider what Wikipedia states about Singer's arguments for and against abortion. It says, Singer states that arguments for or against abortion should be based on utilitarian calculation, which compares the preferences of a woman against the preferences of the fetus. In his view, a preference is anything sought to be obtained or avoided. All forms of benefit or harm caused to a being correspond directly with the satisfaction or frustration of one or more of its preferences. Well, let me halt right there. 
Where in the world did Peter Singer come up with that assertion? Why do the preferences of an individual come into play at all? Says who? Let me take a different stand. Suppose I were standing next to Peter Singer, and I had within my hands a weapon, the ability to kill him right then. This is not something I would want to do. Strictly to examine the logic of the argument. Now, if I prefer to do away with him, that's my preference, why should I not do so? Why should I care what his preferences are? Where does that rule, where does that ethic come from? How about might makes right, and if I have the ability to do it and he can't stop me, then I go ahead and do it. That's a valid ethic as well, logically speaking. We may not like it, but it's an ethic that has been acted upon by many in this world, unfortunately. Furthermore, I've seen some argue that that ethic is derived from the very process that led to the existence of human beings in the first place. That is, the evolutionary process where the strong kill the weak. And therefore, it's perfectly ethical to simply continue that process. We've had some recent mass murderers who literally said they were acting out natural selection. They themselves were the selectors. So that's a logically consistent position. So if Peter Singer were standing next to me, and I had a gun pointed at his head, and I said, please explain to me why I should care at all about your preferences, what would his answer be? Because it seems good? Because he likes it? Logically, he can't counter my claim that the correct ethic is might makes right. Why would we be at an impasse? Because neither of us in this scenario is pointing to an external source for that ethic. That's the fundamental problem here. If man's making up the rules and deriving these supposed ethics on his own, then each person can derive their own ethic, and there is absolutely no way to judge between them. Now, a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, doesn't have that issue at all, because we accept the ethics as defined by the Creator God Himself. We don't make them up. Now, that doesn't mean many Christians haven't acted in a way contrary to the ethics defined by God. Unfortunately, that has, and I am sure, will continue to happen. No doubt about it. But that doesn't mean the ethics don't exist as revealed truth from God himself. Oh, and by the way, being logical here, some atheists have tried to point to the behavior of professing Christians, where their behavior contradicts the teachings of Christianity itself, and said that's the proof that Christianity is a bunch of nonsense. Well, if it were the case that Christianity made the claim that Christians would never act contrary to the ethics of Christianity, in other words, if it made the claim that Christians would never, ever sin, then there might be some validity to that argument. However, if you simply read the New Testament, you quickly realize that claim is not made within the Bible. Rather, the sinful nature of mankind is fully acknowledged. Even the Apostle Paul himself, first he called himself the chief of sinners, but he describes his own ongoing struggle 
with his sinful nature and his desire to do the wrong things. So the observational fact that professing Christians will misbehave, will do sinful things and violate the ethics of Christianity, the ethics of God himself, that is not a logical argument against the truth of Christianity. It's actually just an observation of data from the world around us completely consistent with what the Bible tells us we will see when we look at the world around us. So it is in no way a logical argument against Christianity and against the truth of the Bible. So don't be fooled by that. But let's return to the ethic espoused by Peter Singer. Remember he said that it depends upon the preferences? You're supposed to compare, do a calculation and compare the preferences of a woman against the preferences of her fetus. And a preference is defined as something sought to be obtained or avoided. He goes on to say, since a capacity to experience the sensations of suffering or satisfaction is a prerequisite to having any preferences at all, he hasn't proven that point, he has simply asserted it, and a fetus up to around 18 weeks, says Singer, has no capacity to suffer or feel satisfaction, another unproven assertion. It is not possible for such a fetus to hold any preferences at all. That's his conclusion based upon his unproven assertions. But he reaches the conclusion that a fetus cannot hold any preferences. Therefore, in a utilitarian calculation, there is nothing to weigh against a woman's preferences to have an abortion. Therefore, abortion is morally permissible. Now, I hope you followed the logic here. According to Peter Singer, all that matters is a utilitarian calculation which compares the preferences of the two individuals involved in this potential action, the two individuals being a woman and a fetus, and we're describing the potential action of abortion. So he has made the assertion that preferences are how one decides what is morally permissible or not but he provides no basis whatsoever for his assertion that that is how one decides what is morally permissible. And he further goes on to make unproven assertions, reaching the conclusion that a fetus has no preferences at all, and therefore, obviously, the woman's preference wins the calculation, and so abortion is perfectly fine. That is his logic. Now he goes on to say, newborns lack the essential characteristics of personhood, quote, rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness. Now, that's an interesting assertion. And therefore, quote, killing a newborn baby is never equivalent to killing a person, that is, a being who wants to go on living. So notice his logic again. Singer is making the distinction that whether a person wants to go on living is what determines whether killing them is the same thing or not. In other words, a normal adult human being wants to continue to live, but he's claiming a newborn has no such desire because they don't have sufficient self-consciousness or autonomy or rationality to have such a desire. Therefore, killing a newborn is not at all the same as killing a mature adult, in his view. And you know what? He's absolutely correct within the confines of his logical system in which the preferences of the individuals are what decide what's morally permissible. 
But once again, where does that definition of morality come from? As Wikipedia notes, religious critics have argued that Singer's ethic ignores and undermines the traditional notion of the sanctity of life. Singer agrees and believes the notion of the sanctity of life ought to be discarded as outdated, unscientific, and irrelevant to understanding problems in contemporary bioethics. And the traditional notion of sanctity of life comes from the traditional belief that we are created by God, and he has told us human beings have intrinsic value. And he has explicitly told us that murder is sin. So if you ignore that, then you have to put something in its place. And Singer and many others argue that that traditional view needs to be simply discarded as out of date and unscientific, and therefore has nothing to say about contemporary bioethics. Now, those of you who are Christians and listening to this, just think about your children being educated by people who think exactly like Peter Singer. Give that some serious thought. If college students have never encountered the notion of how a worldview influences the conclusions one reaches, they are very susceptible to the worldview of their professors essentially being shoved down their throats in a not-so-subtle way. They're simply told that old traditional religious view is outdated, unscientific, and therefore irrelevant. Interestingly, Singer has experienced the complexities of some of these questions in his own life. His mother had Alzheimer's disease. He said, quote, I think this has made me see how the issues of someone with these kinds of problems are really very difficult, end quote. In an interview with Ronald Bailey published in December 2000, he explained that his sister shares the responsibility of making decisions about his mother. He did say that if he were solely responsible, his mother might not continue to live. Now, Peter Singer has reached some other moral conclusions that I absolutely agree with. He argues that having some people live in abundance while others starve is morally indefensible. And he argues that anyone able to help the poor should donate part of their income to aid poverty relief and similar efforts. He reasons that when one is already living comfortably, a further purchase to increase comfort will lack the same moral importance as saving another person's life. And he reportedly donates 25% of his own salary to good causes. However, even if someone agrees with Singer's logic here, there's a problem. How do you define already living comfortably? I can easily justify keeping my money for myself by looking at people who have more than I do, can't I? Jesus gave us no such outs. When we had an ethic given to us by the Creator, it was love your neighbor as yourself. And he illustrated this by having a hated Samaritan act in an absolutely morally wonderful way when a priest and a Levite chose not to do so. I am, of course, referring to the so-called parable of the Good Samaritan in which a traveler was attacked by robbers, beaten and stripped of everything, and left on the side of the road. A priest and then a Levite both came by, didn't want to deal with it, and passed by on the other side of the road. They offered absolutely no help. But a Samaritan came by, saw it, and took pity on him, and went and bandaged his wounds and took care of him, and even paid somebody else to care for him. 
Jesus told this parable in response to the question, Who is my neighbor? That question was asked after Jesus had said, Love your neighbor as yourself. They say, Well, who is my neighbor? In other words, how do I get out of that? So he told this story. He then said, Which of these three, that would be the Samaritan, the priest, or the Levite, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The biblical ethic, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, does not derive from human logic. That ethic was given to us by the Creator God Himself. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. See creationmythormiracle.com